because we have not been able to have an intellectual or a moral discussion in our society as to what constitutes a just war in this information age. But are you saying the unmanned nature of war makes it easier to forestall that conversation? Absolutely. How much data do we need to collect? What do we do with it? And what's the purpose? It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Avergan. Bill Arkin was a military analyst for many years. Now he's a reporter covering national security. His new book describes America's obsession with data-driven, drone-powered warfare. We collect eight NFL seasons worth of information every day. Drones are outfitted with cameras that can record 84 million pixels per second. This show will talk about the how and the why of unmanned war. But first, as always, a number that caught our eye this week. It's the significant digit. Can I talk to you? You got one minute? You got one minute? Can I tell you a number? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. The number is 70.1%, and that's the percentage of Americans, young Americans, 16 to 24, who drive alone on their commute every day. I drive, I drive alone, too. You drive by yourself? Yeah. I'm 21. <laughs> Where do you come from? In the Bronx. I just take the West Side Highway, and I get here in 20 minutes. Instead of the train, I'll get here in an hour and a half. And you don't worry about the gas or the environment or anything like that? Yeah, I do, but, I mean... Time, time is money, I guess, right? And well, do you take the train or not? No, I haven't taken the train in months. Why? Because I have a car. <laughs> so that's Jay Lorenzo, who commutes from the Bronx to Manhattan by car. Uh, Leah Labresco is here, news writer for 538. She looked into these census numbers a little bit more about commuting. And, of course, the thing with Jay is he has a choice. And for a lot of people, when you look at a stat like this, all the people who commute by themselves, many of them, I guess, don't have a choice, right? Right. I mean, some people also live in cities where they would have lived closer to the city and in range of public transportation previously. But when you look at places like San Francisco, where lower income people are being priced out, they're moving farther and farther to the margins where a commute may become impossible and they're out of range of the normal bus lines or train systems. And that's what I was thinking about listening to Jay is that even in a place like New York, which we think of as so well served by public transit, there are transportation islands and gaps in the system that maybe don't get as much attention. But this really does get to some serious public policy issues. So what else do we know from this census data? Who are these people who are commuting by themselves? Do we know anything about which cities have more solo commuters? Yeah, so of the biggest 15 metropolitan areas, um, some of the ones that have the most people driving by themselves are Detroit, Dallas, Houston. Those are all about in the 80% of commuters are driving alone. Um, and even in some of the best performing cities, the places where people are most likely to be taking public transit, the numbers aren't high. New York is far and away the best. Um, 31% of workers are going by public transit. But, you know, the one who's next up is San Francisco, 16 percent. And then my own town, D.C., 14 percent. How low those numbers is almost as surprising to me as how high the other numbers were about people driving alone. So is this really about infrastructure? Because people always whenever you talk about this, people always bring up car culture. Americans love to drive. Americans love to be by themselves. They can control their own music. It's their ritual to be alone in their car. Well, I think it varies a lot by city. Um, there are some cities where people are more far flung or the infrastructure isn't there. 
there are some cities where people are kind of dying to use the infrastructure more like D.C. and there aren't enough trains running on the lines for people to be able to commute easily. The trains are overpacked at rush hour. And in fact, the trains are frequently on fire. Um, on fire? D.C. is actually so bad. There's a website, Is D.C. Metro on Fire? Uh, so you can check in the is that, morning. Did they get the dot .com? That must have been a very valuable dot .com. Yeah, you know, they got, they got the is Metro org? on Fire dot com. They dot locked com. it in. Yeah. Um, and people have to check it because <laughs> it's been on fire a lot this summer. All right, Leah Labresco, thank you for joining us. Thanks. William Arkin is here. He's a longtime national security journalist. He was one of the people behind the brilliant Washington Post series, Top Secret America. Until very recently, he was writing about drones and national security at Gawker. And his new book is called Unmanned Drones, Data, and the Illusion of Perfect Warfare. He's in our studio to prove that if you put data in your book title, you will get invited onto this podcast. Bill Arkin, welcome to 538. I think data was the word that my publishers fought against the most. So it's a it's a struggle for us too. How much do we put data in the title? There's a the the percentage of people who want to read something with data in the title is small but committed. So you may want to go right towards them. Your book is a lot about drones, but it's also about data. And let's start with drones, though. So when we say military drone, I suspect that a lot of people likely have an image in their head of an airplane-like device that maybe has missiles and rockets on it. But you point out that's really not the case for a lot of the drones that are being deployed by the military. Do you want to describe maybe the Raven, which is one that you, you, you talk about? Sure. Let's take a little tour of the horizon of drones. So we started at 9-11 with about 200 drones in the U.S. military total, 200. And today there are over 11,000. And between the U.S. and NATO, there's about 14,000. But the vast majority of those drones are not the Cessna-sized Predators and Reapers or the 747-sized Global Hawks. The vast majority of those drones are small. What almost are even these days being called personal reconnaissance uh, systems. The, they're, they're backpackable, they're, they're handheld. And Raven, of course, is, is, the, is the best example because it's the most numerous drone uh, in the U.S. military and probably it's the most numerous military drone in the world. So uh, in the Army alone, there are almost 8,000 Ravens these days. That means that every company, every battalion, every brigade in the Army that's a combat unit uh, has a set of Ravens which are used really for localized Reconnaissance. This so is this describe is, it. What's it? What's well, it this is like? you know this is a four pound, uh, six foot wingspan, uh, uh, hand launchable drone. It's launched like a javelin, throwing it in the sky, and a propeller uh, keeps it a, a, aloft. And of course, it's got the long wings. Uh, it's it's made out of uh, composites and and plastics, and the only part of it really that's hardened is the uh, the the coffee cup sized. Uh, 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 head, which is where the camera and the uh, recording equipment are, are located. And, and this thing probably has a flight time of uh, 45 minutes under its own power. And then it comes back and it, uh, and it, uh, uh, <laughs> I think that the military calls it a, uh, a controlled stall, but it it crashes, <laughs> uh, uh, it, it, and it and it's built to come apart, and then in five minutes they snap the pieces back together, uh, replace the coffee cup sized uh, 
a, a sensor package with another one, and you can launch it away again with a new battery in it. So it's it's really like a, a, a parrot or a, or a quadricopter of the of the commercial type. The kind of it, thing you could buy on eBay. Uh, basically, yes. Uh, uh, it's it's more hardy. It's uh, it's protected against electromagnetic interference. Uh, it has a more sophisticated line of sight communication system. Doesn't operate on a wireless system. Operates on radio waves, and so there are lots of things about it that allow you to uh, to fly it a little bit longer than you can your typical commercial drone, which demands that you be within wireless or Bluetooth range. So. Why do we call that a drone and then also call the 747-sized thing a drone? Well, the, the military hates the term drone, so let's be clear. I mean, the military uh, has now adopted the, the uh, description remotely piloted airplane, which is uh, RPA. Uh, sometimes they call them unmanned aerial systems or unmanned aerial vehicles, but Drone just has such a terrible connotation, yet it's like one of those words that everyone in the human language uh, uses. And so though the military is fighting this losing battle to try to change uh, the picture, and let's be clear, what's the difference, okay? Unmanned, that's the title of my book, Unmanned. And, and, and the notion that the military is is engaged in unmanned warfare is inimical to the to the thought process, the honor, and the traditions of the military institution. So, of course, they want it to be called a remotely piloted aircraft. A person is behind that drone. A person is steering it. A person is making decisions. And they don't want the notion that somehow this is all automated and this is, this is uh, eliminating the humans from the decision-making loop. One more note about the Raven. You said there's 8,000 of them Yeah, in the out army there? alone, yeah. What percentage of drones are these smaller surveillance-oriented drones and what percentage are weaponized or, or up to other things? Well, so right now the United States owns about uh, uh, 500 uh, Reapers and Predators, which are the predominant uh, armed drones. And that's the one that people probably have in their head or when you do Google image search for a drone, that's the one. That You're going to see a up. picture of a predator most likely. Now, of course, uh, we should remind the listeners that uh, uh, the predator first flew in 1994. It, it, it's been around for quite a long time. And Reaper is really a, a, a different monster altogether because it's uh, almost twice the size of predator and, and really looks and and operates much more like a like an actual fighter jet in the sense that it has speed, it has uh, hardiness, it has the ability to carry a wide variety of weapons. But but here's the funny thing: next year, I'd have to answer your question differently, because one of the things that's also happening is weapons are getting smaller, and so smaller drones, hunters, shadows, others are 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 themselves now being armed with smaller weapons. And so we see these these tiny missiles that are no bigger than the f- a forearm uh, being deployed, and the the they're, the one that's made by Raytheon, which is called Pyros, uh, weighs no more than twenty five pounds. Where do these names come from? Reaper, <laughs> uh, Pyros. It seems like they're either let's think of a really badass name, or let's think of something Greek. <laughs> well, I, I think that the military is, does tend to uh, be the military. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, it would be kind of silly if they named their drone Butterfly. Uh, 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 so I'm, 
I don't think people should be surprised. And in many ways, I, I feel even somewhat calmed by the fact that a Reaper drone is called a Reaper drone because at least now, now I get the feeling that the public affairs people haven't taken over completely and said, right, okay, there's an well, acknowledgement that right. this is a real... It's a killing machine. Right. It's a killing machine. Let's be clear. And so uh, we have developed since the earliest days of the use of predators over Bosnia and then uh, their use in, in Iraq, we, we have developed these machines which are able to both spy and kill on one platform. That's the key element of what has changed. And that system, which is, which is linked together in a kind of military internet, a set of, uh, of uh, data transfer devices, a set of, uh, of uh, uh, satellite uh, networks, uh, essentially uh, uh, takes in the overall uh, material which is being uh, collected triages it, which means that the first step of looking at anything is, is there an immediate danger? And then, and then there's what's called second and third echelon analysis. And the second echelon analysis might be uh, what's going on in this town this week. And the third echelon analysis might be uh, how can we identify a particular person or a particular target that we haven't previously identified. So this is a gigantic system. And we hear about the drone pilots uh, piloting those drones from Nevada. We hear about uh, uh, the the analysts sitting in, in, in places like uh, Reno and, uh, and uh, California, Texas, and elsewhere, uh, uh, receiving the take. So it's all more or less like the internet, instantaneously moving around the globe, even though the, the, the picture itself is taken in Iraq or in Afghanistan, and, 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 and the product goes back to Iraq or Afghanistan. So let's, let's trace a piece of data or a piece of intelligence from maybe from a raven that it's gathered and it's come back and it's getting actually analyzed. So this raven is buzzing around in where? Yemen, Afghanistan? Syria. Syria. Okay. Yeah. And so first, what's it gathering? Okay, what so first of all, gathering? the raven is so small and collects such immediate information that there's generally no use to send it anywhere. So this is literally your personal reconnaissance system. This is your set of binoculars that allows you to get up there a few hundred feet in the air and look over the hill. So this is someone actually on the ground. This is what they're using to and gather this, information. And this is what they're seeing. And, and, and maybe one out of a hundred missions, they might see something that's interesting enough to record it, uh, voice annotate it, uh, use a telestrator kind of mechanism to uh, to uh, 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 annotate it and send it forward. But otherwise, almost everything that's collected by those 8,000 systems is erased on the next mission. So let's take as a better example uh, your your workhorse of this era, which is the Predator. So there's some armed Predators and there are unarmed Predators. And, 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 and whether they're armed or unarmed, whether they're flown by the CIA or they're flown by the Air Force, uh, they all fly a set of lines. And those lines are, are combat air patrols or CAPs. And they're like 
scheduled airlines. So every day in the combat theater, whatever it might be, in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, in, in Syria, in Iraq, in Yemen, wherever the U.S. military is paying attention, uh, there's a set of lines which are flown, which is to say that the drone takes off from a secure base, and once it's in the air... Uh, it, uh, the pilot in Nevada or the pilot at some other base in the United States uh, begins to pilot the drone and the sensor operator also located with the pilot uh, begins to operate the sensors, which means to uh, shift back and forth between IR, infrared and, and electro-optical, just your basic camera or other kinds of sensors right, as well. You point out that there's air quality sensors. They yep. can detect carbon monoxide inside of a cave. Right. This is all on, on board? Yes. Yeah, so basically the way these are built, if you think of a, a drone sort of like an iPhone, uh, you can put different apps on it. And that would run all the way from your full motion video, which we're all quite familiar with, uh, at, all the way over to, say, a hyperspectral imager in which it's taking uh, huge uh, amounts of data, you know, giga, gigapixel uh, information and that data is uh, then uh, processed by machines and and compared to libraries of information which then tell you what it is you're looking at because it's not visible to the human eye. So the first thing that this data when it comes off of the drone and gets transmitted back hits is a powerful processor processing machine. Well, absolutely and there's a couple of reasons why. Okay? Every day the US military is collecting about eight seasons of the NFL. Thank you for putting it in sports terms since we're here at ESPN. <laughs> but what do you mean eight seasons of the NFL? Okay, if you took every game of the NFL it, and, and you recorded it for eight seasons, that's about how much data we're collecting every day right now. And you also point out eight, one of these drones is getting 84 million pixels per second of visual information. It can, yes. So now that the cameras themselves have become more and more sophisticated and smaller and smaller. You know, even let, let's give one example. It's a really simple one. Uh, some about 2009, uh, the first drones started to employ high definition. Well, when you go from low def right. to high definition right away, then to transmit the data requires about 20 times the amount of uh, bandwidth that you would need in order to transmit low def. And you described this as a huge challenge for the military to all of a sudden have to build just like the infrastructure, you know, the servers, the, the modems, the, the piping, the wiring, all that stuff to just keep up with this. Well, to keep up with it because when they lose connectivity or when they lose the link, uh, the, then someone dies. So it's not like, oh, damn, I have to reboot my computer. This is, this is, these are matters of life and death. Though that's really the expense behind the drones. And so let's, again, go back to our predator, which is overflying uh, Pakistan. It's able, if it's launched, say, from southern Afghanistan to loiter over a target area or a set of targets that are designated, what's called the target deck. Uh, for about 22 hours or so. So almost for a 24-hour period, it's able to loiter. It could stay over one spot for 22 Why hours. Why do you choose that word loiter as opposed to surveil? Well, because that's really the key distinction with drones. Because absent a man on board, uh, absent an orbit, which is what satellites do, 
uh, it's able to stay in one place. And the military term itself is loitering. It is. It is. But it implies that it's going without it looking for a specific thing, <laughs> that it's just there hanging out and hoping that somewhere in what it gathers is a piece of actionable intelligence. It, it, I think it does connote that. And I play with the word throughout the book because I say, you know, we could say that this is somebody being a hooligan. But the truth of the matter is that what corner it goes to hang out on and what building it looks at and who it's evaluating is, a, is the product of a, a meticulous targeting world. As you were researching this book, were there any capabilities that s- surprised you? Uh, I think that the ability uh, to detect and characterize humans – with hyperspectral imagery and with other kinds of uh, biometric means uh, from drones or even from space uh, really surprised me. And we're just on the cutting edge of that world right now. Was this an element in, in identifying bin Laden? Because they were, they were doing some height imaging and so forth to see if the, the tall man in that compound was him. You know, if it was, it's certainly a secret. But let me give you an idea of some of the uh, fancy footwork we did in the, in the mission against bin Laden. Right. Uh, there's a, uh, a drone that flies that has a particular black box on it. And that black box is able to uh, simulate uh, being a cell tower. So when it goes into a region, let's say if right here at 65th and Columbus Avenue in in, in New York City. Don't give away our location on the podcast. Uh, People are listening. um, So they look at what is the uh, cell phone signal which is being uh, transmitted in that area. And so during the bin Laden raid, one of the uh, uh, top secret uh, methods that they used was that they they believed that the courier, the person who had brought them to the compound in the first place, uh, was the only armed person inside uh, the compound. And they wanted to know where he was. So with a drone flying overhead, somebody at the NSA made a phone call that emulated the brother of the courier's cell phone, so that when his phone rang, it looked like his brother was calling him on the cell phone. He picked up his cell phone, and they were able to immediately uh, triangulate, if you will, but in a much more sophisticated way, exactly where he was inside the compound. Inside the compound. Correct. This room on this floor. Yes, so that they were then able to uh, uh, make sure that the SEALs knew exactly where he was inside the compound. So though that now that's a very sophisticated and, and, and painstaking process, but that gives you a sense of what we are in now able to do. And it also gives you a sense, and here's, you know, sort of my lament in this book. It gives you a sense that when we think of fighting ISIS or we think of fighting Al-Qaeda, it's almost as if this is all we're able to do. This is that, that we're all, that we've become so good at this kind of targeted killing and the weapons have become so precise that, that we mistake our ability to find targets and destroy them with an actual military strategy. And that's why I think these wars never end. That's the sort of underpinning theme of your whole book is this infatuation with data that has blinded people to a larger sense of how we deploy our power. One of the things I learned in doing this book was that in the end, it didn't come out the way I expected it to. 
You know, I, I learned about the way that the intelligence world works today that was different than what my assumptions were. And it alarms me that we are so IT and information oriented at the expense of the classic academic sort of uh, focus of what intelligence means to people. That intelligence to people means wisdom. It means that there are real experts who have real expertise on on countries, on people. And, And I'm not saying that there aren't them, but we haven't increased those by the thousands in the last 15 years. We've increased the number of IT technicians working on 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 data in the last 15 years and so we haven't gotten much smarter and so when we think about soft power versus hard power winning the battle of hearts and minds versus winning the the destructive battle one of the reasons why we don't do very well is that we haven't equally invested in the brain power that's necessary in order to fight and win in this kind of environment we really have transformed in a in a way that it's hard to describe, but here's here's how I'll try to do it. In the in the from the Vietnam era through about Operation Desert Storm, which was the first Iraq War in 1991, the ratio of soldiers shooters to uh, intelligence people was about a hundred to one. So there were 100 soldiers to every one intelligence officer or analyst. And so in your typical battalion, there was probably uh, an S2 and a small intelligence shop of maybe five people uh, supporting uh, 1,800 guys. (laughs) That, That was the ratio. Today, it's the opposite. There are about 100 intelligence people to every fighter. It's the opposite. And so for everyone who's out there on the edge of this network, carrying a gun or flying an airplane or even flying a a drone, there are a hundred people in the IT world, in, 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 in the communications world, in the processing world, in the storage world, in the analysis world, in the, in the data crunching world, who are supporting them. But are you saying we don't need that many people? No, I'm not saying we don't need. I'm just saying that the, 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 the military has transformed from an industrial organization to an information organization. And as a result of that, we don't really even have the language or the arithmetic anymore uh, to begin to describe uh, what kind of a military structure we need or what kind of a military force we need or what kind of a strategy we need to follow on from there because it's so new that we haven't figured out what to do with it yet. describe and you're I think you're part of and I think most people listening are aware of a complicated and tough conversation as you just said that's happening around drones right now but one thing you also point out is that within the military and perhaps within this administration drones are a no-brainer it's just uh, the simplest and most straightforward answer and no one is wringing their hands over it inside the military Lots of people are wringing their hands. There's real interests at play and lots of people are thinking about it. So what the nature of our military is going to be in the future is really a live question. The fact that we use drones so 
predominantly now is is more a question of economy of force okay look it's the easiest way for us to kill targets and as long as we're out there killing targets then the best thing to use is the most efficient means to do so but there's something called just war and I hate to be too philosophical here, but, you know, war is a part of human activity. And because it's been a part of human activity for the past 6,000 years, uh, we've established a set of protocols and a st- set of rules of how to fight wars. In, in, in fighting a just war, it's not just about how you fight the war. It's about what you're fighting for. And, and so whether it be the type of war that we're fighting today or World War II in which we wanted total defeat of the Nazi enemy and, 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 and Imperial Japan, you have to have a means of restoring peace. The, the very definition of just war, going back to the earliest times, are you don't fight in such a way that you can't restore the peace. You have to figure out some moral guidelines in which to fight so that when the war is over, you're able to restore peace. And right now, we don't have that picture. And so, and so no one can say, where does it end? And so since no one can say, where does it end? Even President Obama, who came into office promising, we're out of Iraq, we're out of Afghanistan, we're closing Guantanamo, we're doing all these things, and none of it has really occurred. The fact of the matter is that we continue to fight this war, we continue to do this day-to-day targeting, because we have not been able to have an intellectual or a moral discussion in our society as to what constitutes a just war in this information age. But are you saying the unmanned nature of war makes it easier to forestall that conversation? Absolutely. And we've seen that in the past 14 years, the cascading of generation upon generation of information and and black box and technology has really uh, uh, made it even more complicated. There are people who are saying that Unless we put boots on the ground, unless Americans make sacrifices, unless we can feel the pain of war, then we are divorced from what it is that our own government is doing in our name. And that worries me. But the alternative is not to have a larger army. The the other alternative is to to not wage this war. Well, I mean, whether you have a choice of waging a war or not when somebody is attacking you is 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 an ivory tower question. But since war is a part of us, it's a part of our activity, it's a part, it's not going to go away. I've been in the world of warfare for 40 years since I joined the army in 1974. Okay, I've been in this world. Nothing has changed in terms of the ubiquity of warfare. What's changed is the nature with which it's fought. And so we need to come up with the rules which are uh, coincident with the information era because we are fully in it. So when Edward Snowden comes out and reveals bulk collection or, or, or unlimited collection on the part of the NSA, or I write a book about drones, we're all talking about the same thing, data. How much data do we need to collect? What do we do with it? And what's the purpose? And right now we are just stuck on a treadmill of collecting because we can. And we start, you need to start asking the question, why? Technology works. And so the next question you have to ask is, what's it for? What's it for? And I think you're bringing, you mentioned Snowden, and I think that's exactly the place where your work and what we learned from him overlap, which is this notion that 
there has been this argument that just because we can do something, we're not. And I think over and over we've learned from Snowden and we're learning in books like yours that no, there is basically zero window between what the government can do and what it chooses to do. Whatever it can pull off, it will. Here's the deal, and this is what makes me hopeful. I don't think that there's some crazy person inside NSA or some devious mind at work here who's saying, let's collect everything we can. I think these are desperate people struggling with technologies which are completely new, who are completely paranoid and fearful of there being a strike on the United States that they're going to miss. And so their only answer is, oh, my God, let's collect everything we can and hopefully we're going to catch it. And so I don't think we're talking about us versus them. I think we're talking about us. We're talking about our deciding within our society, what is the Magna Carta of information going to be? What are we going to decide are the limits of information? And when we as a society decide what the limits of information are, the government isn't going to fight against us because, Jesus, this is expensive and this is controversial and this is difficult and so we if we make it into a oh they're spying on mm-hmm. us because they're evil versus they don't know what the hell to collect and we need to help them to answer the question then we have a very different political struggle and a very different outcome you're gonna vote for Rand paul <laughs> none of your fucking business right. i'm gonna vote for doesn't matter vermont doesn't matter anyway oh god uh you move over to new hampshire and then maybe you gotta say um answer a question for me that i've always had when i read about this kind of stuff which is that it seems like there's an inherent paradox where on the one hand there's this sense that that this infrastructure is extremely sophisticated and is totally cutting edge and then at the same time it's bumbling and doesn't know what it's doing and is drowning in information. Well, first of all, the technology is exactly what you see. So when I think about the technology, I think about it as sort of the neutral actor. It's the neutral actor. We're the active actor. What do we want? What do we want our military to do? What do we want our police to do? What do we want our intelligence community to do? And I f- I'm fearful that since 9-11 that the technology has become so dominant and so powerful that we've lost sight of some of those basic questions. So the military starts to look a lot more like the spies and the spies begin to look a lot more like the military and the FBI begins to look a lot more like the CIA. And there's a reason why we have law enforcement and we have spying. There's a reason why there's a distinction between those two things. There's even a reason why we have a National Guard and we have an army. But there was a concerted post 9-11 effort to consolidate that, the intelligence community, wasn't and we were And we were wrong. About that idea. Yeah, there's no question about it that we were wrong. We need to have clear distinctions between what is military and what is civilian, between what is intelligence and what is law enforcement. We need to have those clear distinctions because if we are going to persuade our adversaries not to attack civilian targets, then we ourselves need to be 100% clear of what the difference is between what's military and what's civilian. The observation that I found alarming when I did the reporting and research for this book was that the ease with which the system 
was able to go from Yemen to Somalia to, to Syria to, to Afghanistan to Pakistan day to day or week to week kind of showed how immaterial the culture and the geography and the politics of the place were. So that really was what began to punctuate in my mind that it was only about targeting, that the skill set was targeting. I, I'm searching for the actual way that you phrase it, but you say something to the effect of it's just a series of tactical decisions as opposed to a strategic approach. Yeah, no, I mean, even people, I quote people in the book who are, were, were the highest level participants in this process, and they said there was an automaticity associated with it that made it feel like I wasn't really even participating. Yeah, I get a briefing, and the briefing says, okay, here's the target, Bill Arkin, here's where he lives, we've been following him for 30 days, we know exactly that every morning he walks out and gets a croissant and a cappuccino, and we're going to hit him when he's crossing crossing the street at 8 a.m., sir, is it a go? Right. And then the, 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 the decision makers say, uh, well, what, I'm supposed to question all of this technical stuff that's taken you days, weeks, months, or years to collect? Of course it's a go. And I think I've heard Obama himself sort of express this, that when you're in that seat and in that position – and it is reduced down to this yes or no tactical moment, it's a lot easier to trust the people who are bringing that information to you than imagine the entire world of other possibilities and the larger strategic vision. Well, if I were the president of the United States, I guess I would say, gentlemen, I know you can kill Bill Arkin when he's crossing the street to get his cappuccino. What then? Bill Arkin. The book is Unmanned Drones, Data, and the Illusion of Perfect Warfare. It's sitting here on the table with a bright yellow cover. It's hard to miss at your local bookstore. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. On the 538 website, more from Bill Arkin, a video of part of our conversation, and an audio extra in which he discusses the threat of cyber attacks and cyber spying. He's actually not that worried. Find it at 538.com slash podcasts. We'll post that video on the 538 Facebook page as well. What's the Point's editor is Chadwick Matlin. Our video producer is Ryan Nantel with help from Jordan Shulkin. Joel Werner helped mix and produce this episode. My name is Jody Avergan. I'm on Twitter at Jody Avergan. We have a new email address. The whole office is buzzing. You can get in touch by emailing podcasts at 538.com. We don't have an intern right now, so it's guaranteed that I will read those emails. Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, who also hosts the excellent Song Exploder podcast. Check it out on iTunes. While you're in iTunes, look up What's the Point and give us a rating and a review. That improves our presence in the podcast store, which means more people can discover the show. Thanks for listening. See you soon. What's the Point listeners? I'm Chadwick Matlin. I'm Kate Fagan. I'm Neil Payne. And together we make up the crew of Hot Takedown, 538 Sports Podcast. Kate, how would you describe the show if you had to do it in like five seconds? It's freaking awesome. Okay, Neil? We take down hot takes. Look at that. That's we- sort of the title. 
Good point. <laughs> so if you want to hear us talk about the week in sports news and what people are talking about in an uninformed way and ha- hear about the data and the stats and the analytics that take them down, subscribe in the iTunes store. Search for Hot Takedown to find us. We'll talk to you then. Do it. <laughs>